listening to Green State, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality, the agency responsible for restoring, maintaining, and enhancing the quality of Oregon's air, land, and water. Welcome back to Green State, everyone. I'm Lauren Wordis. And I'm Dylan Darling. So at the start of each Green State episode, we remind you that DEQ protects Oregon's air, land, and water. And in this episode, we're going to look closer at how DEQ specifically protects water. That's right. We'll learn about how the science of water monitoring meets the regulation of laws designed to keep water clean. The Water Quality Program's mission is to protect and improve Oregon's rivers, lakes, streams, and groundwater, keeping these waters safe for drinking, fish habitat, recreation, and irrigation, among many other beneficial uses. To understand what exactly the Water Quality Program does to achieve that mission, we started with the person who runs the program. Jennifer Weigel, the DEQ Water Quality Administrator. Let's hear from her about the program, how she got into this work, and how you can find out more information about lakes, rivers, and streams near you. I'm Jennifer Weigel, and I'm the Water Quality Administrator here at Oregon DEQ. Great. We're happy to have you. And The first question I'm going to pose to you is, how do you protect Oregon's water quality? So in essence, what does DEQ's water quality program do? Our water quality program has a number of different elements to it. Uh, So we have responsibilities for both surface waters and the protection of groundwaters. Uh, We do that through a variety of different types of programs. Many of our programs are regulatory, so we do things like issuing permits with protective requirements for cities or industries that use water and treat it before um, releasing it into um, either Oregon surface waters or groundwaters. We also have a lot of other programs that look at, you know, how do we know clean is clean and, and safe water is safe water. So we do that for the protection of fish and other kinds of aquatic organisms. We set levels that ensure that fish are safe to eat. We do it to ensure that our rivers and lakes and beaches are safe to swim in also. So we look at all different parts of those. And then we also do a lot of work um, where we do have places where pollution levels are too high. We have ways in which we look at watersheds or various locations um, and work with um, local communities and watershed councils and folks to think of, to develop plans for how we restore watersheds that are in need of restoration. Protecting Oregon's water quality is a huge job. So what got you interested in doing this work? Yeah, I, um, I'm i really fortunate. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest in Washington and a uh, river that ran adjacent to the community where I grew up was one of the places in the 70s and 80s where people used to come because it was a place where you could still salmon fish and you could see bald eagles. I've always had an appreciation for beautiful places near the water. And, and um, I'm really lucky that I've been able to pursue a career that allows me to think about it and work to protect it every day. It looks like you've been at DQ for more than a decade. Uh, and before that, you are actually at the EPA. And so I'm kind of curious, you know, what changes have you seen at DEQ and how does state regulation compare to federal? 
Yeah. So I, I did. I started my career in uh, working for the Environmental Protection Agency, and I worked out of their headquarters office in Washington, D.C. And it was an, an amazing experience. And part of the part of the benefit of living there is you're constantly thinking about how are states the same and how are they different and how do they administer water quality programs and water water quality protection in, in Florida looks much different than water quality protection in Oregon looks much different than water quality protection in Arizona. Um, but we all are working under the same federal clean water act, but yet each state administers its own programs in a way that hopefully, you know, makes them makes the most sense to them. Yeah. Thank you for that, Jennifer. And you, it made me wonder, like if I were just someone out there in the public and I want to find out real specific information about a lake or river, other water body near me, is there a place that you really say, oh, this is where you should start? Like what's like, what's a good starting point for someone just trying to find out about water quality close to them? Okay. So, all right. Um, so one of the ways that, um, you know, we would encourage people to, to think about how they can get involved or how they can learn more. Uh, one thing that DQ has is we do have a website where you can go and find out what the water quality is on streams near you. So it's it's based on geospatial information, GIS. So you can go in and zoom in on a map and click and it'll tell you whether or not it is meeting some of our in-stream goals for various pollutant parameters. So you can go in and you can find out if, is it exceeding temperature limits? Is it, does it have uh, recurring events of harmful algal blooms? So you can, you can zoom in and find out things that are of interest to you as a, as someone who lives in a particular area or you're traveling to a certain area and you want to find out more. You can also, if we have publicly accessible database, so if you really want to dig into data about, um, you know, what's being monitored for, where, how often, what are the results. Uh, we do have databases where you can go in and, and pull pull down water quality monitoring data that's either been collected by DEQ, um, any number of its federal or local partners or watershed councils. Um, we maintain that kind of data um, through our website as well, where you can go in and, and learn more about that. I feel like talking with Jennifer was a great place to start because she really sheds a light on the complexity of working under the general federal law, the Clean Water Act, and then figuring out how to shape it to fit the needs of Oregon. And when Jennifer goes on to talk about that interactive online tool, first of all, we'll link to that in the show notes. And second of all, it's based on what we call the integrated report. And this is an example of how state and federal regulations work together. That report covers water quality all around Oregon and DEQ staff in water quality and the lab put it together and then EPA approves it. Every two years, DEQ analyzes the conditions of thousands of miles of waterways running through Oregon. We're talking about rivers, streams, lakes, coastal waters, and even entire watersheds. The information tells us what waterways are impaired, and this goes into that online interactive map that you were just talking about. Impaired means that a waterway has too much of a pollutant to fully protect aquatic life or drinking water or even be able to allow for safe recreational use and fish consumption. 
DEQ sent the most recent version of the report, the 2022 integrated report, to EPA earlier this summer, and it should be approved soon. A lot goes into this report. DEQ water quality staff went over 7.6 million pieces of data and more than 3,000 monitoring stations to determine what water should be labeled as impaired. And so this report and some of the rules surrounding it are really what we're going to dig into today. Yeah, definitely, Lauren. And what I really liked about the conversations we had was going from the data and all this information kind of through science a bit and then to what's happening on the ground, how we go to have improved waterways. And so we talked with Leslie Merrick, the Water Quality Assessment Program Lead at Headquarters. She had a great way of explaining the significance of the integrated report. I kind of think of it as like the juncture between policy and science. So the process begins with the policy states adopt into rule to ensure waters are protected for designated uses or beneficial uses in society's value. So that would be like fish and aquatic life, recreation, drinking water, these kinds of things. So the integrated report is not a report in the written form, but rather a reporting to EPA. The term integrated is used because the reporting combines two sections of the Clean Water Act. And the Clean Water Act is the federal law protecting water throughout the country. So this is what Jennifer was referring to earlier. DEQ implements the law in Oregon. In case you'd like to do some internet searching, the two specific sections of the Clean Water Act that are combined to form the integrated report are 305B and 303D. Now, Section 305B requires each state to submit a report about the quality of the state's surface and groundwater to EPA every two years. The report gives the overall condition of Oregon's waters, while Section 303D requires states to identify waters that do not meet water quality standards. Waters that end up on the 303D list need some help. So waters on the list are subject to additional environmental protections and cleanup plans. That's right. And working at DEQ, I've heard about the 303D list before and others listening might have as well. And Leslie clarified something for me. The 303D list and impaired waters are the same thing. So folks might hear both think that they're two different lists, but they're the same one. We'll hear how she provides some context around that. So one thing I've kind of learned from this program is there's really a lot of names for the same (laughs) same thing. (laughs) So the 303D list is the impaired waters list. And an impaired water means that a water body is listed It indicates that at least one beneficial use is not being fully supported and a TMDL or another pollution plan needs to be put in place. So a TMDL would be a total maximum daily load. And that's just a plan, which I'm sure we'll hear about later in more detail. But the water body may meet water quality criteria at certain periods of the year, certain times, but data indicate that the beneficial use is not always supported. The most common reason waters around Oregon are listed as impaired is temperature. The water is warm enough that it is harmful to aquatic life or causing other problems. There are also other pollution issues such as high levels of bacteria and low levels of oxygen. So once a water is 
considered impaired, what happens next? Are they doomed to stay that way? Uh, we learned about the Columbia Slough in Portland and Walla Walla Subbasin near Milton Freewater as examples of where water has improved. Andrea Motsky, basin coordinator for the Lower Willamette Subbasin, talked with us about Columbia Slough. You may have driven right by this waddle and not even notice it. Columbia Slough runs parallel to the Columbia River by Portland International Airport and through the Cully neighborhood in Portland. EPA has highlighted Columbia Slough and improvements to its water as a success story. But before we get to that, let's learn more about what was the problem and how DEQ helped local agencies and organizations to address it. You're going to hear about TMDLs again. In the 90s, there was water quality sampling that was done for bacteria. And that sampling showed that the slough didn't meet the state's water quality standard for bacteria. And so it was put on the state's 303D list of impaired water bodies. And this is what Leslie was talking about previously. So this is a list of impaired water bodies that the Columbia Slough got on for bacteria. So once a water body gets on this list of impaired water bodies, then these clean water plans, also called total maximum daily loads, TMDLs, need to be developed. So it's basically, it's a plan for responsible local agencies and organizations to put uh, strategies in place to reduce that pollutant of concern. So that's what these TMDLs are for. So the Columbia Slough did have a TMDL in 1998. And then watershed staff from DEQ. So we work with all these, they're called designated management agencies. So these are those local agencies that are responsible for implementing these clean water plans or these TMDLs. And so they put together a TMDL implementation plan that DEQ watershed staff review and approve. We look at annual reports that they submit to watershed staff every year to show the status of their implementation to reduce, in this case, we're talking about bacteria. And they also, like every five years, do updates to their TMDL implementation plans to ensure that they're still doing what they need to do to, to reduce bacteria. A bunch has been done over the years to address bacteria in Columbia Slough. In particular, the city of Portland worked to reduce combined sewage overflows. That's when a big storm causes stormwater and sewage to overflow. As you might suspect, overflows are not good for water quality. And now, even if you haven't heard of the Columbia Slough, you might know about this next part of the story. So there were two big infrastructure projects that were done, one in the Willamette River and then one in the Columbia Slough, and these were called the Big Pipe. You might have heard that before, but again, these were immense infrastructure projects that took, I think, about 20 years for the city of Portland to implement but what it did is once that big pipe got installed in the Columbia Slough area, it reduced the combined sewer overflows by 99%. So that's a huge reduction in, in bacteria going into the slough. So that was really a very significant effort that the city of Portland did. But there's also been a number of other types of restoration efforts. So bacteria can come from point sources like direct discharges from pipes into streams, but 
Another significant pollution aspect, of, especially with bacteria, these non-point or diffuse sources of pollution. So the city of Portland, the Multnomah County Drainage District, the Port of Portland, they all have restoration projects that they implement. And a lot of these are part of the TMDL implementation plans that they're required to implement. So a lot of riparian restoration work. So these are those riparian areas. These are those green areas with trees and shrubs along water bodies that provide filters for pollutants from getting into waterways. They also can provide shade if water bodies have temperature issues, which the Columbia Slough does. These different cities have done a lot of revegetation work in these riparian areas to provide better filtering capacities. The city of Portland has also bought property along the slough, so then they're able to manage it with city protective measures in place, maintaining adequate buffers and making sure that the trees and shrubs are free to grow. We asked Angie if the work to improve Columbia Slough is done. I'd like to say it's done, but it, it's, it's not. It's a work in progress. So the, you know, as I said, the lower eight miles was removed, but the upper parts of the Columbia Slough still have bacteria issues. So city and other groups are continuing their work on reducing bacteria in the upper part of the watershed. There's also other pollutants of issue in the Columbia Slough, and that temperature is one of them. And then also just legacy pollutants like DDT and PCBs are still present in the watershed, even though they were outlawed, banned from use many years ago, they still continue to be found in the soils and other areas in the watershed. So we still see DDT and PCBs in the watershed. Now let's go to a different part of the state and a different river system, but one that still has needed restoration work to improve its water. The Walla Walla Subbasin includes the Walla Walla River and the South Fork Walla Walla River near Milton Freewater. That's in Eastern Oregon along the state's border with Washington. We talked with Ryan Mitchie, a senior water quality analyst in DEQ's TMDL program. He helped with a recent analysis of this project. So, some history. Back in 1998, the Walla Walla Subbasin was listed on the 303D list as impaired due to temperature. DEQ put out a TMDL for the subbasin in 2005 focused on riverside shade and the shape of the river two things that affect the water temperature of rivers. Over the years, local groups have planted vegetation in the subbasin, trying to add more shade, and levees have been removed and repaired, allowing the rivers to flow more naturally. Ryan recently helped with an analysis of the project. The purpose of my study, or the study that was worked on, was to go back and see basically how things were doing. How close are we to meeting those shade targets? How close are we to meeting those channel targets that were set in the TMDL? There's both some good and some bad news about this project. One thing is that in, two, I think it was 2006, it was just right after the TMDL was issued, the state of the condition of one of the levees, that is the Milton Freewater Levee, which is in the lower section of the river around the city of Milton Freewater, it was in a state of disrepair. I mean, it needed to be, there needed to be maintenance and, and work done on it. I don't know all the details of it, but at a certain point, the city itself took upon this task to repair the levee. One of the things that the levee 
accomplished was they moved it back from farther away from the river channel, basically. And that action alone played a significant role in some of the channel morphology changes that we, we documented in the study. It both allowed the river to kind of do a little bit more meandering, slow down. A lot of riparian vegetation started to establish uh, previously where the levee was. And I think there was quite a bit of actual active restoration by folks in the watershed as well. But that one action alone, I think, had a big impact, at least on the shade and the way the channel was migrating. The other, and this is more of a, a little bit of a bummer, Shortly after the study wrapped up, the, so the Watershed Council there, the Walla Walla Basin Watershed Council, is really active in monitoring, doing temperature monitoring and various studies and analysis. And one of the things that they did is they did this whole big modeling analysis, and then in which some of which we leveraged for our study. And the year after, there was a 100-year flood, <laughs> and it completely... The channel completely changed position. A lot of the riparian vegetation that had been planted or was there existing was, you know, either gone, fell in the river. And based on the monitoring that they've done, the temperatures have increased significantly. So I guess on a silver lining, by nature of the shade getting removed, we know that shade does work because it kept the tempers, keeping the temperatures a little bit cooler, but also just means that there's there's more work to do. Ryan and others working on improving the Walla Walla subbasin weren't discouraged by the flood. That's what rivers do. They move around, and it's actually good that things like this happen because that's a dynamic system and. What a TMDL is ultimately trying to do is build resiliency into that system because you're going to see over time, temperatures will go up, temperatures will go down, the riparian condition will, will change through time. And, you know, the TMDL is trying to build resilience. And, and part of an example of the levee, backing the levee off of the bank, that's one action that helps increase the resiliency of the river because it gives it an active channel area to move around in. And so things like that, while we still hear about, oh no, the flood took away some of the trees, that's, you know, that's a bummer, but, but that's what happens to rivers. And the, having that resiliency built in to them is an important thing. That's one of the goals of the TMDL. So as we can tell from what Ryan said, helping repair water systems is really complex and we can't always plan for what nature has in store. And I think it's clear given everything we've covered on this episode that a lot goes into protecting Oregon's water. And we tried to really focus on the integrated report, make sure you check out that tool online, as well as examples of how streams become impaired and how we work to repair them. We'll definitely have to circle back with more people and water quality. We have a couple ideas in the works, so you'll be hearing about it again in the future. We wanted to close with a few more words from Water Quality Administrator Jennifer Weigel about the future of the water quality program, the challenges Oregon faces, and how to you can get more involved if you care about water quality. In terms of the future of water quality, we have a number of, of significant challenges. I think over time, a lot of the programs we administer have been around a long time. A lot of the contemporary statutes and laws date from the early 1970s. And so in some cases, 
a lot of the more obvious water pollution issues have been addressed. And a lot of the ones that we have remaining are, are very complex and often are intertwined with other aspects beyond water quality. So water availability and drought is really you know, is a significant issue in Oregon. Climate is another really significant issue. And so how do we in Oregon um, look at water quality, look at climate resilience, and are there ways in which we can approach both protection and restoration that help mitigate some of those effects? One, one challenge that, that Oregon has that touches on all of these things is, is thinking about how we support some of our threatened and endangered species, such as salmon. Salmon are such an iconic species, you know, for people um, who live in Oregon, for the tribes in the Pacific Northwest. You know, it's also commercial and economic uh, importance to have healthy salmon populations. And they need, they need cold water. They need lots of water. Um, and they need it to be in the right place at the right time um, in order to, to have healthy populations of, for our salmon fisheries. So that's one place where we have focused a lot of time and energy and continue to do so. We have a number of various salmon populations that are in really extreme peril. Climate and drought is not helping them at all. But thinking about how we can do restoration in a way and protect our water quality in a way that helps mitigate some of those effects or some of the things that, that we think about on a really a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, what do those in-stream conditions need to be? How does that relate to habitat and riparian streamside condition? And working both at the local level with, with tribes, with um, other state agencies on how best to do that. That's super fascinating. It seems like there was kind of a, a time where the feeling was, you know, these bad things are happening and we need to, we need to fight them. We need to direct the water, you know, get the water to treatment and then into this pipe and then into this pipe. And now it's kind of more about integration and kind of like, okay, these are the systems at play and how do we make our systems fit with the world system, I guess. Right. Yeah. I think there's so much interesting and innovative thinking that's going on out there. And, and I think that's, that's, there's going to continue to be a lot of emphasis for how do we do that? Not only, you know, at the local scale, you know, how do we influence individuals behavior, which is really hard, but also then how do we make nature work for us? And, and also how do we make at a larger scale streams and this, and the kind of riparian adjacent kind of the areas alongside the streams in better condition to help mitigate some of the impacts and to help ensure that that the streams function the way that their nature intends them to. If people want to get involved, you know, there are lots of great opportunities, everything from local nonprofit watershed councils um, to various organizations around the state that specialize in, in protecting water quality and talking about various water quality issues, both on a statewide basis and, and locally. And there's a lot of great folks out there doing some really amazing work around protecting their, their local waters and, and, and watersheds. And we encourage people to check out some of those organizations where they live. So like you said, Dylan, we're definitely going to have to circle back on water quality. There's just so much to cover. Folks who are interested in the future of water quality work at DEQ might be interested in looking at some of the program's plans online, like the Water Quality 2035 Vision and Strategy. We'll link to that in the show notes. And like Jennifer said, you can get involved in your community to help improve your local stream, lake, or river. We thought about listing those resources in the show notes 
notes, but there are truly too many to count. So just Google Watershed Council near me and you'll find something. For now, we hope that you feel like you understand a bit more about DEQ's water quality program and how DEQ is working to keep water clean and safe. If you want to learn more about DEQ and water quality now, check out our last episode of Green State. It's about cyanobacteria harmful algal blooms, an interesting water quality topic that can affect recreation and be a health concern. See you next time on Green State. Thank you for listening to Green State, the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality's podcast. And thanks to all the voices who contributed to the conversation. Our music is by Jason Shaw at audionautics.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you get our upcoming episodes. You can listen pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. Feel free to rate and review. And if you have any questions or ideas for topics for us to cover, you can reach us at 503-451-0585 or by email at green.state.org.gov. To find out more, go to dequblog.com slash greenstate.